Welcome to the first installment of Unexpected Archives, our new series of interview episodes about what scholarly work and literary studies can look like. We'll discuss the ways our research moves us out from behind our computer screens and literary tomes to engage with primary texts, material culture, and community projects that build our knowledge in exciting and sometimes surprising ways. Today, I'll be talking with Lindsay Baltus, a doctoral candidate in English, who, among other accomplishments, directed the 2017 Davis Feminist Film Festival. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, Jennifer. Okay, so since the focus of these interviews is showing what scholarly and archival work in literary studies can look like, perhaps we can begin by exploring your research. So what's the focus of your dissertation project? I study feminist media activism, um, so I use kind of contemporary problematics uh, in media-focused feminism to look back at 1970s feminism. Um, so, for instance, um, I look at issues like diversity initiatives and kind of the relationship between white feminism and intersectional feminism to think about uh, community radio. Um, or I'm looking at uh, media convergence, which I can talk about later, to look back at um, kind of Bay Area print archives um, from women's liberation groups. Um, and then in a chapter that I have not yet written, I plan to um, think about user-generated video to look at uh, feminist video archives. So this sounds like a really exciting, like interdisciplinary topic that's that's drawing on a lot of sources. So can you say a little bit about how your archive has evolved since you've been working on this research? Yes. Um, so I'd be really interested to talk more about kind of the relationship of my research to literary studies because I'm kind of myself trying to like work out what that relationship is. So when I... Um, when I conceived of this project in my prospectus and in my qualifying exam, I kind of imagined that it would also include an archive of uh, feminist science fiction because um, I wanted to think about how, like, the representation of media work um, in those novels, which, of course, are also, you know, media themselves. Um, but since my qualifying exam, that archive, although I, like, love those texts so much and think they're really interesting and worthwhile, has, has you know, kind of made its way out of my dissertation, so I'm not really working with it anymore. Um, so that's not to say that it won't return. Um, I have been thinking that might be something to at least, like, reference in my introduction. Um, but that was something that I thought would position me more as a, as a literary scholar or as a more interdisciplinary scholar who also does literary studies, kind of in addition to, like, this, um, this media work, which, you know, might position me in different kinds of... Um, just in different kinds of fields, um, in different kinds of jobs, um, and that kind of thing. So that's one way that my archive has evolved since I began imagining um, the project. Um, and then I, so I also kind of thought that I might use kind of a more qualitative method um, to think about, it, like, incorporating interviews into my um, dissertation. And I actually conducted some interviews um, with some people who were involved um, in the media archives that I was using. So um, I spoke to um, an archivist, for example, um, who is in charge of the American Women Project at the Pacifica Radio Archives, um, just to, like, ask her about, you know, kind of her own 
political positioning and how she like understands archival work as a feminist project. Um, and I think like those interviews have been really valuable for me in kind of like figuring out what the contemporary field looks like that I'm trying to put in relation to this archive. Um, but that's another thing that I'm kind of still working out how to, how to like actually incorporate into the body of my work. Like I'm not really sure if those interviews are going to act as primary sources for me or if they're just kind of helping me contextualize what the, what the relationship to the historical archive looks like, right? What the contemporary relationship to the historical archive is. Um, and then I like wrote a lot of notes in response to this question because I think it's kind of a, a meaty one. So I have one other thing to say. Um, I also have, I think when I initially conceived of this project, I thought I was going to have three distinct, like the chapters were going to be divided really strongly by medium, right? So I have like radio chapter, print chapter, video chapter, and that those were going to be like separate. But actually my argument um, in this chapter that where I'm working primarily on print has to do with the ways in which these events, right, these kind of like protests um, were constructed across media. So, for example, there's this, um, there, well, okay, a couple different things. So there are these like on the street, kind of like on the ground protests that were covered um, in like on different media, but also like were kind of like the event that instigated um, that like that began a feminist media project. So like to use a specific example, feminists, women's liberation of Berkeley um, in 1970 protested being excluded from uh, karate classes, like self-defense courses um, on the Berkeley campus. And I first learned about this um, by listening to the Pacifica radio archives, because this was a protest that was covered on Pacifica radio um, on the Pacifica station that was, you know, housed um, in Berkeley and like did a lot of work covering kind of Berkeley student activism. And I heard these like radio interviews with the feminists and they, they really like the person who was reporting on this protest was not uh, themselves like involved in the women's liberation group, but followed this group of feminists like across campus as they like went to the chancellor's office and, you know, like made their demands. Um, and then I found out later that the first issue of the Berkeley Women's Liberation publication, which is called It Ain't Me, Babe, it was a paper that ran for a long time in Berkeley, um, was like the first article on the first page of the first issue um, is it's called like Self-Defense for Women. And it starts out by saying, you know, like, women are, you know, like, fighting for their freedom, uh, fighting for their, like, liberation in Berkeley, and then it describes this, this specific protest. So, I mean, I think you could make the argument that it was, like, this protest that kind of catalyzed this group of women to come together um, and, you know, and begin this publication, maybe, or else they were already kind of, like, working on, you know, these two projects, like, in tandem. But so it's been interesting to me, I guess, to think about how... Um, not how the different media are not necessarily like separated from one another, right? How these kinds of like events can help me think about the, like making arguments um, uh, about their relationship to one another rather than saying like, okay, feminists did print activism, feminists did radio, you know, because mm -hmm. they were mm -hmm. really all happening um, uh, at the same time um, and around the same kind of um, events and groups of, of people. 
Yeah, one thing that really struck me while you were talking, besides the like awesome range of sources and, and the way you're talking about them kind of converging in interesting ways. One is I was feeling jealous that you can go talk to people who are alive because, <laughs> you know, I do 19th century, so it's just not possible. But in doing that, especially in the in the part where you're talking about actually conducting interviews, it's it was really interesting to me, at least, the idea that you're actually contributing to the archive using media, right? You're yeah. making recordings that can then be used by someone else, possibly in the future, who's doing a similar kind of research. So you yourself are are, are building into the archive that you're studying in mm-hmm. kind of a neat way. Yeah. Yeah, it's inspiring, right, to, like, research how um, documentation is, like, you know this kind of tried and true method of feminist activism and then also kind of engage in that in that work so it's cool yeah so you kind of answered this already but if you have more to say are there certain sources that have been really interesting or surprising or the most helpful that you found during your research yeah um so when I was working on my chapter that um, focuses primarily on radio, although, as I was saying, like I used different kinds of sources um, to, to help make those arguments about radio, um, I went down to L.A. Um, and worked in the archives of the Pacifica Radio Network, and they have... Um, you can access... Actually, it's like fully accessible online now. It's all been digitized. So I... I found this um, archive of consciousness-raising programs, two different series, one that had been uh, recorded at WBAI in New York and one that had been recorded at KPFA in Berkeley. Um, And they are amazing. They are like these long-form discussions between groups of women just like about their experiences of sexism. And I mean, so like consciousness raising sessions are something that like when you research this moment in the history of feminism, you like read a lot about. And there's, I had like encountered a lot of um, things in the print archives, just kind of describing this method, describing like what's important about getting groups of women together to raise consciousness and like find you know, talk to each other about how their personal experiences are in fact political, right? This is like the famous, Mm. the personal is political comes out of this moment. But I had never heard, I mean, this was happening long before I was born. Like I had never been to a consciousness raising session. I didn't know like what it actually was like, right? Um, So it was really cool to hear one of these happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, to hear many of these happening, right? They happen like there. These recordings um, were made like over, you know, like several different um, meeting sessions. Um, that was kind of awesome, and and it also was kind of it inspired a lot of questions uh, for me about what's the difference between like what's the medium specificity of radio consciousness raising. So, so if the small group process, which is also called, um, really depends on like getting these groups of women together in a room and like having that, you know, having them really be kind of like, um, there like in person, um, you know, in relationship with one another, then what is the effect of moving that, pro- of like recording that process and then broadcasting mm-hmm. it, right? What's the, how does it change the process? How, um, 
how does the like listener on the other end, right? Like experience consciousness raising, like what's the goal of, of radio consciousness raising, um, kind of like as compared to the in-person processes. Um, yeah. So those have been really, really interesting to hear, just like really fun to listen to. Um, and also really intriguing to ask questions about. Yeah, it sounds like you've had you've had the moment that we all wish for, right? Of finding something really neat in the archives, and and it plays out in interesting ways. Um, okay, so I'm gonna shift gears slightly because the name of the series of episodes is Unexpected Archives. Although I feel like you've had some unexpected ones already, um, I want to turn to a recent project that you worked on that I don't think would necessarily spring to mind for most people when thinking about building a literary research archive. And that is that this year you were the director of the Davis Feminist Film Festival. What motivated you to apply to direct at the Davis Feminist Film Festival? Um, so I saw the ad for that they were looking for someone to fill this position and I basically was like, that is perfect. (laughs) I, um, because so obvious, like as I've been discussing, my research is all about feminism and media and, um, I had been involved in kind of feminist media work, um, working with, uh, bitch media in Portland before I came to Davis and, um, I had been thinking about different ways that I could link my research um, with different kinds of work besides just, like, teaching mm-hmm. these texts and these archives. Like, what does more kind of community-focused, like, community-organizing type of work look like when I put it in relationship to um, my research interests? So, yeah, that's what motivated me to apply as I saw that, you know, there needed someone with all of this experience that I happened to have and these interests that I happened to have. Mm-hmm. And you get to, you know, plan this amazing community event. Um, and I was like, yes. <laughs> so, and it was also a really um, I was really interested in the way that I could in the relationships that I could build with undergrads, um, the kind of different kinds of relationships I could build with undergrads that are different from like a teaching, a teaching relationship. So I worked with 10 undergrad interns um to organize the festival and it was really more about like supervising their work we did a um reading group uh first like we kind of read some texts together about feminism and media and feminism and film and we discussed them and we started thinking about how um these texts would be potentially related to our work as feminist media activists and then we like actually did the work Mm -hmm. right so it was so cool to think about um to think with this other group of learners about how you know texts and action are related to one another Mm -hmm. um so that was a long answer about what motivated me to apply no I think that's really helpful because I I actually like the way that it kind of blends together your research and the idea of archive and then kind of some work creating again some archival materials and then you know moving into teaching which is right kind of the the circle of life for a lot of knowledge um so the festival is over now and it was a smashing success um so what were the outcomes for you that you felt you know were important for working on the festival whether that's 
the event itself or items or relationships that were created through that work? Yeah. Um, well, one big thing is that I developed a relationship with the people working at the WRRC, the Women's Resources and Research Center, um, because that is the um, campus center that the festival is run through. So the DFFF is a WRRC program, right? Um so, like, I have an office that I work um, in at the WRRC, and I just spent a lot of time there, and all of the um, the interns had been kind of, like, hired through the WRRC. Some of them did other community organizing work and were involved in other WRRC programs, and so it was a way for me to, like, learn about what campus feminism looks like at UC Davis, which is also really relevant to my research because... Part of what I'm studying um, by kind of like tracing these media genealogies is how concepts or practices that are really important to uh, contemporary feminists have evolved um, or different kinds of patterns that I can that I can trace through this media activism that, you know, are, are relevant today. So, for instance... Um, the idea of a trigger warning, Mm -hmm. right? Which we, or a content warning, which was something that we talked about um, during the film festival, right? When, uh, when, why, how do we give content warnings about the films that we're going to show? Um, It's, so I think that there, I think that, you know, um, paying attention to people's histories of trauma and how they're going to relate to, um, these films uh, is really important. Um, I also think it is really important to think critically about these practices and like the ways in which they get institutionalized um, and how close, you know, their contemporary instantiations are to the, you know, purported like purpose of, um, of doing these kinds of things. So one outcome for me of like working in the film festival has been that I have this like context now in which to this practical context in which to think about um, concepts that are really important in my research and that you know have kind of began in the moment um, in the historical moment in which my archive is situated um, and then have changed over the years mm-hmm. um, yeah and then obviously like the film festival itself was it was really cool to see so many people come to the theater. We had like 300 people show up um, to see these these intersectional feminist films. Um, and that, I don't know, that the kind of like community energy mm. that that generated and the energy that that generated for me um, in like continuing to do this kind of research uh, was really awesome. Just out of curiosity, did you get to talk to any of the filmmakers about the idea of a content warning for their film? Like, I'm just thinking it kind of changes someone's experience of it, right? That having a a label, a warning label on it somehow might impact that. Yeah. So I did, I did not get to talk to the filmmakers um, about the content warnings. And actually we didn't end up doing individual content warnings Mm. for each of the films. Um, This was something that I had to kind of, I don't know, it was, it it was kind of a charged uh, decision actually between Mm -hmm. the group of interns that I worked with um, and myself as the director. So we initially had, 
Okay, so the interns suggested that we do content warnings on the individual films to, like, identify um, themes that might be troubling for our audience members. Mm -hmm. And I was really, like, committed to having kind of the, the... intern sense of like of um feminist practices really like inform what we were doing in the film festival so I was like yeah okay we can you know figure out a way to do that um but then as we were looking at the individual films we didn't actually really have a film that we showed in the festival that had a representation of something like you know sexual violence something that you would think of like as really Mm -hmm. needing a like a trigger warning um but of course the films did deal with like different themes that could be difficult for some people, right? They dealt with, like, loss and mourning, um, issues related to, like, environmental justice and displacement, right? Like, refugee experiences. So things that could um, carry with them, like, experiences of violence or trauma. And yet the films themselves didn't really represent those, you know, any, like, kind of very explicit violence on Mm -hmm. the screen. Mm -hmm. So... We had initially, like, pulled out those themes and then, like, had them kind of at the beginning of each of the synopses in the program. But I started to feel like this is suggesting that I will be able to identify, like, anything that could be troubling for a potential viewer. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't feel comfortable with that. Like, I don't... What if there's something in the film that someone, you know is triggered by that I could not have anticipated, right? And, you know, or, you know, am I, like, being presumptuous? I mean, the interns and I were kind of, like, identifying these themes together, but at the same time, like, it says, like, Lindsay Baltus, director, Davis Feminist Film Festival, like, on the program where these trigger warnings or content warnings were located. Um, So I, I just felt like I felt uncomfortable in that role. I felt uncomfortable, like, assuming that these types of themes would somehow have this relationship to our audience. So I ended up taking them off and doing kind of a general statement at the beginning of the program that said, you know, like, these films are unrated, they are potentially not appropriate for all ages, Um, please do read the synopses to get a sense of what the films are about, um, and feel free to leave the theater at any time if Mm. you would rather not see a film, right? And then we did have seats at the ends of aisles that were designated as um, self-care seats um, so people could sit there to be able to, like, leave easily. Um, And I made an announcement about it beforehand. Like, I basically said that out loud. So to me, that felt like, you know, that felt like plenty. Mm -hmm. And and we we also had a list of uh, resources in the back of the program so that if people felt like they needed more support, um, they knew where they could go. Um, but I, it, it was a little bit of like when I, so I did end up kind of just like making this decision to take the content, the individual content warnings off because we were kind of pressed for time. And when I told my interns about it, they were kind of upset. Mm -hmm. Um, they partially, probably because I had just kind of like done this thing without being able to, you know, we didn't have a chance to talk it over as a group. Um, but I think, I think also for folks who are working in feminist spaces, there come to be, like, these expectations. Well, these are the practices. These are our practices, right? Like, we do content warnings. And mm. and the way in which the content warnings are done or, like, why or, like, the potential 
kind of like consequences that they carry with them are sometimes get lost in this, um, in the process of basically them being institutionalized. Mm-hmm. Why did I initially start talking about this? Oh, you were talking, you were asking me if I like, if the filmmakers knew that we had done content warnings. So that's, yeah. So no, because we didn't end up doing them for individual films is the short answer to the question. But like, obviously this is a problem that I'm like really interested in and it's totally yeah. related to my research. Um, so I've been thinking about it a lot. Absolutely. I, yeah, that's really interesting. And I mean, and it's related to teaching too, right? So, cause there's the, there's always the mm-hmm. question of trigger warnings on your syllabus or something like that, whether you should include those or not. So I think that's, yeah. that's really interesting and, and relevant. So yeah. just kind of to dovetail with this focus on teaching, are there skills or abilities that you've gained that could also be helpful for academic activities like teaching and research? Yes. Um, okay, so so supervising the interns um, is different, right, from teaching um, in a classroom because there isn't so much this sense of, like, there, there's not any, like, expectation of, like, imparting knowledge, right? It's, it kind of is set up from the beginning as uh, a group project, but that's also the kind of teaching that I am most comfortable with doing. Um, so I think one thing that I will probably continue to think about is how to use my experiences um, supervising projects um, with these undergrads to do kind of more like project-based learning in the classroom. Like, I don't think it would look exactly the same as the work that we did on the Feminist Film Festival because I think there would need to be kind of... Um, a more like dare I say rigorous approach to (laughs) the the text that we would be working with or that you know we would be putting in relationship to our um kind of community work but um I'd be interested in thinking more about how to how to engage in the kind of like practices the kind of community practices that um that we were doing in the film festival Mm. uh but translate them to a classroom um environment so that's one way that I think it, it could relate to my teaching. The other thing about it is, like, I don't know, the the Women's Center, like, is not like an academic department, mm. but it is part of this, like, academic experience that the students are having, right? So for me, it's a little bit, like, it doesn't necessarily make sense to divide you know, what the Davis Feminist Film Festival is and what the undergrads are doing there from, like, academic work. Like, I think it is. It's all this... It's, it's, it's all academic work. Um, although the, you know, the types of... The, like, expectations, I guess, for the students are a little bit different um, in each context. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it... I think it would be cool to, to let those, like, borders between, like, academic and extracurricular... Um, be a little bit more porous. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that hopefully this interview will do, right, is because directing the Davis Feminist Film Festival isn't necessarily, as I said, something that people think of as, oh, scholarly work. But I think everything that you're saying is saying, actually, it is. And there's a lot of helpful kind of knowledge that you just wouldn't be able to access by, you know, sitting and reading a big book of of theoretical writing or media studies writing or something like that yeah and I wonder if this is partially like a humanity specific type of question too because 
the, the Avis Feminist Film Festival actually did used to be run through academic departments, so it's mm-hmm. only been at the Women's Center for a couple years, but the program is 12 years. I mean, this was the 12th annual Davis Feminist Film Festival. Um, so it was run, the, the, the like, reading group um, and kind of curation group that I did with the interns actually used to be an academic class that people took, that interns took for credit, um, but you can only give course credit if it's, like, housed in a department and for, for like, funding reasons. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, just, like, programmatic reasons, I suppose. It, it, it kind of, like, shifted um, to being funded by student affairs. But, like, I think social science people probably think a lot, like, this, this like, distinction that, like, oh, well, there's, like, academic work and then there's, like, the Davis Feminist Film Festival. It wouldn't probably make as much sense to a sociologist, mm-hmm. you know, or, like, an anthropologist. I think... Um, I think maybe it's kind of more of a humanities orientation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you think working with artists and with the larger community contributed to your approach to research? So in my research, like in studying kind of like the history of feminism, there's always this... Feminism since the 1970s has, I think, been kind of troubled by this divide between like white feminism and women of color mm. feminism. So like for example in the radio archives these were like largely white middle class women who had access to the community radio like the resources of community radio who were able to like have the time to go into the station and but and like when they describe their experiences in these consciousness raising sessions these are not like universal experiences of all women everywhere even though sometimes they are characterized as such like in the actual you know like primary source right like women have to deal with this and it's like no actually you're like a rich white woman and so you know that's why your experience as like a housewife specifically um although like it's you are clearly experiencing gender oppression like it it looks like that because of your like the intersections of your identity so but but I feel like because I I personally experience a lot of privilege like I basically have to stay really vigilant when I'm thinking about my primary sources to like identify these moments to like think about um the ways in which like my research is um like kind of re-instilling these like exclusionary types of practices um and focuses on some archives instead of others and so working at the WRRC with women of color people who identify as non-binary, like this kind of more expansive view of um, feminism has been really powerful to me um, because I feel like my interns are like building these relationships with these interns and like talking to them about their own like experiences with, you know, um, the different dimensions of oppression and their different relationships to power. has has helped me um, to think more critically about like the objects of my research. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's a nice segue to one last question before we're mm-hmm. finished here. Um, so did you, it sounds like you have a sense of the impact on the interns of the experience. You talked a little bit about that. 
Do you have a sense of the impact on the larger community just from being at the festival or any kind of feedback that you got? Yeah, people are really, um, like, people love the Davis Feminist Film Festival. The, there's, I feel like there's, like, a core of people who have been kind of, like, invested in the film festival for many years um, because it's this kind of, like, long-running program. Um, and I think that's really awesome. Uh, it was really cool for me to learn that there, you know, is this community of people out there who are interested in engaging with feminism Um, and I also think that that represents, like, an opportunity to do, to encourage, like, more conversations with the community about, like, well, okay, like, what feminism actually is. It's evolving definition, right? Um, people want to, I think feminism is kind of, like, hot right now, (laughs) you know, in the, um, in the age of Trump, you know, and, like, post-women's march. Um, but I think that there are, like, versions of feminism that are pretty like surface and don't have and kind of like look like feminism or that you can kind of buy without it actually translating to Mm -hmm. significant political change um so I mean I didn't like I'm not saying that like at the film festival I got a sense that all these people in the community were you know like just doing like popular feminism right um but the fact that so many people like came out to me signals that there's like more to be done. You know what I mean? Like we Mm -hmm. didn't have like a panel discussion um, this year at the film festival. We kind of just showed the films. I would love to like engage the audience a little bit more. Like I think that was, um, that's, that is some, uh, uh, yeah, there's just potential to do, to do more with the community. Um, that we were hoping to reach. Um, so I think, I mean, I think my, like, main response to, like, the impact on, like, questions about the impact on the community is, like, I don't feel like I have done enough work yet to really engage the community, and I need to do more um, next year. So we got, and we got some feedback um, from audience members during the festival who, that said things like that, right? That said, like, we would appreciate a Q&A. Like, we want to be able to, like, hmm. vote on the films. Um, you know, people also, like, identified to me, like, accessibility problems that I mm-hmm. um, had noticed but not been able to fix. Um, that, but that were really important to the audience, right? The subtitles were too small and hard to read. Um, so that was a really significant piece of feedback. But yeah, I think there's I think there's more to be done. I mean, one question that I'm wondering about and I I I mean, I don't know that there's any way to really measure this is if you had a sense if people were coming to the festival already deeply invested in feminism or if there were people who were coming in who maybe were just curious and interested and wanted to learn more and maybe left with a a better sense of what feminism is and does and looks like as a mm-hmm. kind of way of thinking about what the what the impact might be yeah um i think both i think there were some people who kind of already had like were kind of like involved in the feminist mm-hmm. community on campus and in davis and saw like coming to this event as like a way to support the work that they were already invested in um but also like I think I I talked a little bit about in like the written interview we had 
um, an 11 year old submit a piece of art to the art show that we did in the lobby before the festival and that 11 year old came with her mom um, and so I think like that was a really cool example of um, somebody who is like beginning their feminist journey mm -hmm. right um, and she she watched most of the films I think her mom did um, take her out into the lobby during the films that like referenced um, sexual violence because there was like a question of like age appropriateness right mm. um, but we like I hope that we through we gave her like an honorable mention for her piece of art um, and so I hope that we and we gave her a t-shirt like I hope that we like inspired her to like keep to keep engaging with feminism um, we also heard from somebody who said Oh, my, um, I was just, so it was the weekend of Mother's Day, the feminist right. film festival. And so somebody, which was cool because we had a lot of, um, there were some themes dealing with like motherhood and kind of like intergenerational um, relationships to gender that I thought were very fitting. Um, and somebody wrote that they had come to Davis just for the weekend to visit their daughter for Mother's Day. And the daughter and the friend were like, come to the Davis Feminist Film Festival and they were so surprised by how many diverse perspectives that that you know were represented in the film festival so I mean I hope that for people like that um the festival was able to kind of like expand their definition of what is relevant to like a feminist struggle I mean there mm -hmm. were some films that we included in the festival that dealt with like issues of like ethnicity and nation for example or like I was saying like environmental justice that it might not seem immediately apparent to everybody like what this like how this relates to gender oppression but of course um you know the struggles are are uh are def are certainly um related and the way um the way yeah what do I want to say about that I mean the way the power works just means that gender oppression is is not divided from issues relating to like the environment, for instance. Just like as a start, I hope that um, it was kind of doing that type of um, political work. Well, this sounds like a good place to end. This was terrific. Thank okay. you so much, Lindsay. Thank you so much. It's been really great to talk about this. It's helped me clarify a lot of my own my own thoughts about this work, so I really appreciate it.